We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. New York Times bestselling author Nikki Grimes is the recipient of the 2020 ALAN Award for Outstanding Contributions to Young Adult Literature, the 2017 Children's Literature Legacy Award, the 2016 Virginia Hamilton Literary Award, and the 2006 NCTE Award for Excellence in Poetry for Children. Her distinguished works include the much-honored books Garvey's Choice, ALA notable book, Southwest Sunrise, Coretta Scott King award winner, Ordinary Hazards, Boston Globe Horn book honor, One Last Word, its companion, Legacy, Women Poets of the Harlem Renaissance, and the New York Times bestseller, Kamala Harris, Rooted in Justice. She is the creator of the ALA notable poetry book, Come Sunday, At Jerusalem's Gate, and Voices of Christmas. Nikki Grimes has been featured in the pages of Image, Journal of Arts and Religion, Today's Christian Woman, Poetry Magazine, and on the Academy of American Poets series, Poem a Day, among others. Her latest book, Glory in the Margins, Sunday Poems, is being published by Paraclete Press in September, 2021. Ms. Grimes lives in Corona, California. Nikki Grimes, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you. So glad to be here. We'd like to begin our conversations just by inviting you to maybe share with us uh, some thoughts about your relationship with silence. How has silence been a part of your life? Well, I certainly wouldn't get very far in my work without it. Whenever I uh, am looking for, have been looking for a place to live in the past, I've always looked for quiet places where there was quiet and a certain quality of quiet, the kind of quiet that you find in nature, quiet that just leaves space for you to think, for you to imagine, um, hear yourself which is a little odd coming from New York City where there's so much noise. And I didn't really, I didn't even understand the phrase noise pollution until I lived in Tanzania for a year where you can sit on your porch, remember they have porches, but you could sit outside and hear someone's radio miles away because there is no sound pollution. There's no noise pollution. So sound carries a very long way. And so after a year of living in that environment and returning to New York, I walked down the street with my hands over my ears. And in my mother's house, I'd have my hands over my ears because of course there'd be the sirens outside going by and the radio was on and somebody else was watching television. Just like, I just, I could not believe the amount of noise there was. And I thought, was it always this noisy? Because I had gotten used to actual quiet. And so I came back craving that and looking for that. It was very important to me now. That's so beautiful. Nikki, one thing you said that really stuck with me, uh, you said a kind of quiet that leaves space. And I'm wondering, do you think it's this particular kind of quiet or the silence that, that leaves space is kind of the part that has given you maybe the space to imagine and navigate words and language in such a beautiful and particular way as you do in your work? Without doubt. Without doubt, that's, that's where it comes from. 
you know, and you also need that, that kind of quiet. If you're going to actually hear when God is speaking, because, you know, we have all of our busyness, but we have all of the noise that's in our head. You know, God, you know, we need to enter those places of, of quiet um, so that we can actually hear him. One of my earliest um, memories of, a, of an important sort of stretch of silence wasn't, I wasn't very young, but it was when I um, first became a believer and I, and I set up a prayer altar in my house and I was at the altar praying one day. And in the midst of that stretch of silence, I suddenly realized that I was talking to the creator of the universe and he was listening. And I was so stunned by that, that I've never forgotten it. And it's that kind of experience that you forever chase every time you have quiet time. <laughs> you love to return to that, just, you know, this explosive kind of aha, you know, of that cognizant in a fuller way of that presence. Yeah. Yeah. Silence is everything. Mm, yeah. God is as the space. God is this deep intimacy you're describing is just so beautiful. How do you think you met silence, even in the bustling, energetic, noisy, dynamic world of New York City? Do you have any recollections either? you know, as a child or a teenager, young adult of silence breaking through the noise for you? Well, as I said, I would go looking for it. Mm. Um, that was at least part of the reason I spent so much time in libraries because there were, I could have great pockets of that kind of silence mm. in those spaces. Yeah. And I pretty much lived there. I should have just had a cot, you know, set up <laughs> you're you're speaking to my uh very much nerdy book heart at this point that's, that's <laughs> a cot in the library and not going anywhere i i would have i would have given anything as a child for that <laughs> sounds like heaven <laughs> yeah it was that it was also for me it was a safe space which libraries are very much for kids like myself. Um, so, but the, the silence was definitely a plus, definitely part of that, getting away from the noise of the world. Did you? Out when it was time to close. <laughs> like we're closing now, <laughs> I have to go. Yeah. You wanted an uh, an exemption, like no, no. Everybody else goes. I I stay. Exactly. <laughs> I'll set up my cot now. <laughs> well, you you've drawn the connection, obviously, with libraries, the connection between um, literature or reading and silence. Uh, when did you discover that you have the heart of a poet? When did you discover the relationship between silence and, and writing or composition? Well, I started, I started writing um, when I was six and it was out of just feeling compelled and having, needing the outlet because I had so much in my head and my heart that I couldn't get out any other way and I had to get it out and I didn't have people who I could trust to talk to. And so I just started spilling my thoughts and, and feelings on the page and discovered this wonderful alchemy of words on the page and the magic of that. And at the end, I felt, I always felt better, more peace. After having written, I thought, well, now that's cool. I want more of that. 
And so I've been, you know, sort of chasing that ever since. So I was always the one who was off in the corner or going to my room to close the door, you know, just seeking out those quiet spaces so that I could think and so that I could write, so that I could ask the questions I had and in the silence get the answers I needed. Nikki, speaking of in the silence, in your new book, Glory in the Margins, you have a poem titled In the Silence. And I wonder if you might share maybe the story of that poem and, and if you're willing maybe also to read it to us. Well, I'll read it for sure. I'm trying to remember the story. One thing I'm really struck by in this conversation is even the rhythm, the rhythm with which you, you speak. Um, and so I'm really just eager to also hear, hear your reading. Sure. Timing is everything, they say, and good things come to those who wait. Well, waiting is hardly my forte. But a relay runner practices patience knows to study her teammate, monitor that runner's rhythm in order to anticipate the perfect passing of the baton. One must wait in silence, watch for signs, like the first begotten did. Jesus knew who he would call to run the race with him, had invested in their lives, learned the beating of their hearts. And when at last he called them, his voice laced with love was already familiar, his urgency easy to detect. He knew the time was right to step into the flow of the Father's work, and so can we. Study the rhythm of the Lord, practice his pacing, anticipate his perfect passing of ministry's baton. He will always let us know when the time is right. If we wait for the word in silence, Lord, teach me to be quiet. Teach me to tarry for you. One of the um, reasons I, I love doing these poems, because these are all poems that I um, wrote um, to complement the sermon at my church each, each week. And one of the reasons I love doing it is because in preparing for it, I get to enter these wonderful places of silence. Because I go to God and I say, okay, this is, these are the words, this is the passage. Give me the word that you want to share with the congregation. Whatever that one nugget is, just give me one nugget that's pure, that's from you, that's from your heart, that you know the congregation needs. And then I just wait for that. And that becomes the core of that poem. And what's phenomenal, but what should not be surprising, is that every single time it aligns with the sermon, which I have not heard, it aligns with the music and everything is always in sync. I'm like, yeah, it's another God thing. And all of that happened in silence. Well, I love, and you know, in the book at the bottom, you give some scripture references and I don't know, are these references to the sermon or references to scriptures that inspired you or both? To the sermon. To the sermon. Mm -hmm. And that's all that I, that I get. Um, Pastor, we give me the title of the sermon that week and the passages, and that's it. And I would just run with it. Yeah. Because I noticed Psalm 62 is one of the references for that particular verse. And I, I, I don't have it memorized, but I do know the verse in Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence, which um, may have inspired the title. But, um, you know, this is really what you are describing so beautifully, this um, entering into that waiting silence with confidence, with trust that you will be given the words you need and that they will resonate with the music ministry and the message. And 
it's really beautiful. Thank you so much for for articulating this. Yeah, to go along with that, I I want to thank you too because what I'm what I feel uh, when I listen to you do the reading is that you've done such a great service for us. Like when I hear a sermon, sermons are fine, but like they're so prose. They're so uh, they're so linear in a way. Mm-hmm. You've given you've breathed in like the way Cassidy said it before, a rhythm. You've you've breathed in space. You've given the poetic aspect of the word of God. You you've kind of reminded us that it's there and you're allowing it to circulate or you're allowing God to poke at it. And so the sermon is no longer so much prose as it is this other, as Carl says, this beautiful thing of like music and it's all coming together. So I, now I want every church I have to have a poetic, (laughs) because this, I love poetry and, and this I think would be a great service for me. Absolutely. Well, and that was why I did the book. Um, so that, pastors or even people who are doing like drama in churches could go to this and pull something out that works for that particular, you know, uh, service um, and add that into it. Our whole focus in our congregation is um, multi-voiced, talk about being multi-voiced. So sometimes we have theater, you know, uh, elements. Um, Of course, we always have music. um, and, And now we have poetry and we also have visual art uh, as well Um, we have one or two Sundays a year that are uh, focused entirely on visual art and the visual artists um, are speaking and guiding and we're doing actual artwork and praying as we work and it's it's been uh, just such a joy because every single aspect of course speaks to someone differently. There are people who get more from the visual art. There are others who get more from the music. There are some people who, you know, might not get the sermon, but they get the poem and that's the thing that they carry away with them. So there's something to speak to everyone, to every heart and and make, you know, make that connection. And I I love that. Nikki, do you suppose in this way that the, the role of the artist or the role of the poet in a church setting is is also a role of of prophet and a role of speaking to the prophetic imagination. Absolutely. Whether it's exhortation or um, just giving another perspective, another way of looking at things um, and going, you know, sort of straight to the heart. Um, making it okay to ask questions and be be reminded that that's that's fine you know god's not going to fall apart if you ask him a question (laughs) it's good (laughs) but we might and that might be a good thing yeah exactly so yeah it's um it has been something really special when i first started though it was funny because no one had ever done anything like that. And so some members of the congregation weren't quite sure how that whole poetry thing was gonna work. But then when I started traveling a lot for my work and I wasn't there and there was no poem, they were like, well, where is the poem? So then I worked on raising up other poets and identifying other poets in the congregation who could fill in for me so that there would be like a team of poets. Yeah. Like, oh, you want poetry? Okay, we can do that. (laughs) Oh my God, you just created an entire new ministry and a whole, that's unbelievable. (laughs) But how beautiful. Um, what What a model. That story needs to be told. Because I think of poetry, you know, I mean, scripture is filled with poetry. And the great, the great saints and mystics of every generation and every culture have given voice to their, their prayer and their spirituality through, through the rhythm of poetry. And, and yet we live in a prose culture. 
And so to be able to, to reintroduce that, what, a, what an amazing gift. Was this something that you felt inspired to do or did your, your pastor or somebody in ministry come to you? How did, how well, did that, the- That came from me. I mean, cause I've been in other congregations where, you know, on Christmas and Easter, I would be asked to read something. I was like, well, that's kind of, you know, it's nice, but what about the rest of the year? You know, I have things to speak the rest of the year too. Um, so this time I just went to, to this pastor and I said, look, I, you know, I had this idea. You think it would be okay? Cause I think I had done something for Easter or whatever. I said, you know, it's lovely, but I'd really like to do a poem every Sunday. Is that possible? Is that doable? And he was like, oh, okay, we can do that. I'm like, and initially, I would do it early enough in the week so that I could send it to him and he would have opportunity to respond or comment if there was, you know, something that was off or whatever. And after a couple of months, he said, you know, you don't need to do that anymore. I trust you theologically. I can be surprised and, and have it be as fresh for me every Sunday as everyone else. I'm like, well, okay. And from that point on, he would just give me the title and the scripture and I would be off money. That's wonderful. Yeah. How did the title Glory in the Margins uh, come about? I was thinking about those of us who live in the margins and how often God visits us there and how just how present he always is in those spaces, in those marginal spaces, um, in all of our lives, but certainly um, for those people who who populate the margins, it's almost like he prefers it. He spends so much time there, and so that was sort of what you know what I was um, when the title came to me. And titles are funny; they either come to you or they don't. If you don't have a good title, then you're hunting all over the place trying to find one. Um, but the best titles just sort of emerge and, and you hear them and you're like, yeah, of course, this is one of those. Yeah, truly. You can tell, I mean, it's inspired. Um, I mean, I see talk about poetic resonances and like layers upon layers of meaning just in the title. You could just sit there going, wow glory in the margins. And you can think of like 10 different ways to read that. And just yeah. before you even got open the book. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so, so here's, here's my thing. I, I'm kind of curious. You kind of covered it, but I, I think, I think I want to see if I could, if there's any more to say here. I mean, if there isn't, that's fine. Cassidy asked the question about the prophetic. So how do you see the relationship um, just broadly, your poetry with prayer? Do you see the silent piece that you do as you write as part of your silent prayer practice or the beginning of conversation with God? Or do you feel that all good prayer on some level is poetic or like, is there something like that or is there not? Is that just, I'm barking up the wrong tree. Well, for me, there's very little separation between the poetry and the prayer. If I'm not, because for me, prayer Part of prayer is being in a receptive state. And that's where the poetry comes from. I mean, the po that's when the poetry comes, is when I'm in a, in a, re a receptive um, frame of mind and heart for something to enter. And so that's always, that's always linked with prayer. Whether or not I formally pray over a particular work, because there are certainly times that I do that, the mindset is always prayerful. And I trust God is going to give me what I need in those spaces, and he does. Nikki, you remind me of the words of Jim Finley, who says, the poet cannot make the poem happen, but the poet can assume the inner stance that allows the least resistance to the gift of the poem. And, and I wonder, you know, we talk about this spaciousness and you were kind of, you know, talking about this, this inner stance, this going to this place of 
being in the quiet and, and letting it come to you. And I'm wondering if, if there's ever a resistance to that, you know, a resistance to take the time to find the quiet or to be in that space where you know the words come and maybe how you handle that, if that is maybe hard sometimes, or you find yourself resisting the need to go there. Well, I suppose the only time I would resist is if the content is problematic, is I, I know, I know it's going to hurt me to go there. I know I'm going to, it's even more than remembering the pain. It's almost experiencing, experiencing it anew. There are certain things that trigger us. And of course, to enter into those triggering things, <laughs> it's like, I don't really want to go there. So I might put off writing about a certain thing because I know in order to do it well, in order to create something that is truly redemptive, I'm going to need to go there. I might want to put that off. Like, yeah, not right now. So that, that would be a, a point of resistance. Um, but it's temporary because I will eventually get to that place where I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's get in there. And in that case, for certain very specific prayer um, will precede it. Um, with something that's particularly, or I'm gonna to have to worry about being, you know, being in, being in pain. I will contact a few of my prayer warriors and say, I'm working on XYZ right now. And I really could appreciate your prayer. I, I wanna know that I'm being carried in prayer before I start. And, um, and I'll do that. And then, then I'll move forward because then I know I have the foundation I need, the spiritual foundation I need to move, to move forward and to move through it. Yeah, and I think another point you reminded me of is the importance to know when our resistance is also prophetic, when our resistance is telling us something that it's not time yet, or this could be too triggering right now, or listen to yourself. You know, I think that's just a really valuable thing to think about. Absolutely. I also deeply appreciate your answer here because uh, a lot of times we think of silence as this kind of individual thing. And you just shouted out that this is a communal affair. Absolutely. That, you know, that you need your, your, your support network that's going to pray for you and hold you in prayer. You have God here. You, you, there's a community involved. This isn't just you going alone. So that you're able to, when you're ready, uh, step into it. That's beautiful. That's, that's a powerful lesson that I constantly have to remind myself. And, and you know, I, I'll just take it as grace that you're once more stepping up telling me, hey, Kevin, this isn't just you. This is a community doing this, you know. Absolutely. If we didn't need a community, God would have just created one of us. He put us in a community for a reason. Oh, that's a great line. <laughs> yeah. that, that's a keeper right there. Yeah. I'm thinking about that line from the from Greek philosophy, the flight of the alone to the alone. Mm -hmm. And and that has infected so much, you know, especially uh, to be very blunt, I think white Christianity, white, white North American and European Christianity has been so infected with that kind of individualistic way of of thinking about prayer and thinking about spirituality and thinking about silence. Uh, but globally speaking, I think what you are representing is very much what the tradition understands, that, that all prayer, all silence, all contemplation must emerge out of the community. And so uh, it's, you know, for some of us, we need a little bit of remedial education. Mm. To, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, up. Carl, I just, I think I'll put the words for you. Uh, she's preaching orthodoxy and uh, majority and the alone to alone is heresy and the minority like small yeah. wrong position. <laughs> <laughs> 
but but it's become embedded in privileged expressions of Christianity. Yeah. And yeah. so that's that's what we have to we have to work to deconstruct. So yeah. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. Um, we're going through a leadership transition in my, in my church right now, which is never comfortable. But the first thing I thought when I realized it was, it was happening and we were going to be looking for a new pastor and all that, I thought, well, okay, my community's still here. That hasn't changed. Um, a lot of reasons why I joined this particular church had to do with the community. I mean, it, that was, you know, the, that fellowship group and, and that just group of believers. I'm like, yeah, they're still there. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> That's not even a question. So we're just going to weather this period together and <laughs> find a new pastor together and we'll be fine. And that's how we're moving forward. And there's such a comfort level with that. And we come together regularly um, in prayer and fellowship. You know, that has not been broken throughout. That's, that's kind of the main thing, you know. And, you know, whenever you go to the Gospels, over and over and over again, Jesus is talking about community and, you know, being together and being one and supporting each other. And like, duh, get the message, people. It's all about us. It's all about the we. There's no I in any of that. It's all the we. We miss it. We're missing out. So my, my question, is, but I'm curious about the children's writing. I'd, I'd like to talk about the silence, um, how you find silence uh, in writing, that kind of writing. Uh, do you find, is it, harder or even maybe easier to to find the silence in that kind of writing there is nothing easier about writing for children in any way for any age for so many reasons and it isn't just accessibility of language that's you know just a small piece of it but when you write for children you have to keep in mind that the work has to engage them on various levels because unlike a book for adults, that book is going to be read and read and read and read and read again and read again and read again, not only by the child, but by the adult, whether that's the teacher or the parent. And so you wanna work that is happening on many different levels. And you want to invite children into that story. And when you invite them into story, you're inviting them into a place of silence, a place where the world goes away. So that's a very critical part of, of writing for children. I um, of late have been really chasing um, stories about wanting to do stories about um, engaging with nature because there aren't that many books featuring uh, characters of color where you see that played out and i'm like well, where why isn't there you know i live in the garden i know lots of people who do um people for whom uh nature is very central to the way they live their lives. And yet you don't see that reflected you know, in the books. So I've been you know, starting to do 
do some writing focusing on those themes. One of the books I have in production now is called, that one, there are a few. There's one that's a walk in the woods, wonderful place for quiet. A cup of quiet is another. And that's all about that quality of quiet that I talked about before, the quiet of nature. So you have, which isn't silent, because you have bees buzzing and the word wings and you know all those kinds of sounds but they're coming from a very different kind of place it's not noise but there is sound and then i did southwest sunrise which came out is that this year or last year anyway where a child is going from new york city to the southwest where completely different landscape there's all this quiet and all this space that he's ne never experienced. Um, and he imagines this is gonna be really a negative experience. And it turns out, I could like this here. It's okay. Yeah. As he encounters um, what is you know natural there, the, the, the creatures that are there and, and the flowers and you know all that, that he, doesn't expect to find, and he misses skyscrapers, but then he encounters these phenomenal, um, you know, hills, red hills and mountains, and realizes, well, this environment has its own skyscrapers. They're just not man-made. So there's still that awe he gets to experience, but it's in a very different environment. So I'm, I'm just looking to sort of um, explore those kinds of areas and uh, kinds of moments um, where a child can, can see him or herself um, in, in a quiet space and embrace that and see the beauty of that. I love what you're saying about this, the invitation, the invitation of story you know, the invitation of poetry, the invitation that words can create. And I'm wondering about your own story, how you were invited into navigating that you were a poet. What was the, maybe the formation of your vocation in learning that you were and you could be a poet? I think there's a, oftentimes that invitation is just an invitation to more of our true selves when we read something that that strikes us or that gives us that space that we've also been talking about to even learn or think about who we are or who we could be. And so I wonder if you might share a little bit of how you navigated um, your own vocation as a writer and as a poet. I'm not sure I, I know how to answer that. Because as I said, it for me, it was, uh, uh, a matter of being feeling compelled to write for, for certain. When I first started writing, it was all about that. Anyway, um, it became more than that. And I began to think in terms of career, probably when I was end of middle school, early high school. And I thought, this is something I could do. And it was a very odd idea because I lived in an environment where there weren't any writers, poets or otherwise, it wasn't a vocation anyone was familiar with. And so they would say to me, writers don't come from around here. You wanna do what? But I already knew who I was by then. And so all I could do was say, yeah, just watch me. Um, and what worked for me ultimately in the pursuit of this work at that stage was to surround myself with other young people who had dreams and visions of their own, who were getting the same kind of messages for whatever it was they were pursuing and to create community out of those people. And we encouraged each other. Um, so that was certainly part of it. And then I did have 
you know, I found you always find like the one teacher who supports you, who encourages you, who builds you up in that area of your speciality. And I found that person. And then I have the fortune of finding working authors, one in particular, who uh, became my first mentor uh, and encouraged me. And it was an author that my teacher introduced me to. What she would do is uh, she used to sneak books into my backpack, a book bag. I don't think we had backpacks then. And I would discover them when I got home. And that was the way um, I was introduced to James Baldwin. She put one of his books in there. Like, this is somebody you should know. And I fell in love with his writing. Uh, even though, I mean, he doesn't write poetry, but his work just is, it's so, so lyrical in so many ways. Um, he certainly had the heart of a poet because it's definitely in the work. And he became my first mentor. So I had encouragement from some really good places to keep going, to pursue it. Uh, but I didn't really know what it was going to be. And along the way, I, I met other poets, um, banded together with Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez and Quincy Troop and hanging out with those guys. And so I became part of that, you know, poetry community on the East Coast. And I was still in New York. And at that point, it wasn't about the quiet for me, although I needed the quiet to write. My focus then was just speaking to social justice issues. I'm, you know, working through things that are going on in my life because that's how I process everything is through poetry. That's how I figure things out. You know, it's always, that's sort of my default, how I make sense of things. Um, I've written more poetry in the last year and a half, uh, aside from books, um, than I had in years because of the pandemic and because of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and just all of it. Um, I was constantly feeling pressed. Like, I have to speak, I have to, what's going on? I have to make some kind of sense of it in order to get to the next day, because by the next day, there'd be some other, you know, news that would blow up. <laughs> you have to deal with like, oh, great. What am I going to do with that now? I think there was like a couple of weeks where every few days we we're hearing about another shooting. It was like, I think like three weeks was like that. And I started to feel like absolutely an endangered person. Like, do I even dare go out of my house? I might get shot. They're just shooting us left and right. And so I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And that's how I got through it. What I found out, because I was writing and I was also posting these poems. And then I would hear from people who would say, thank you so much. I needed that. Because they were trying to process too. And so by processing it, from myself and sharing it, I was also helping them, helping other people to process. That's part of the power of poetry. And then by creating that work and then getting it out of me, I again make space for the quiet. Make, create space for the quiet, create space for the peace to return. So what's amazing, again, I, you want to talk about God leading you. You speak. You seem to speak and go in places and anticipate, whether it's the pastor or whoever. I was about to ask you this question, and you've already landed here. It's amazing. You're talking about how your processing of being a poet was communal as well. Yeah. And then because it's communal— you're now talking about a topic that's really important for us on the podcast. We talk about this idea that silence is is the theme of this podcast. And one of the things that we've talked about early on and have been unpacking over this long period of time 
is that there is a form of silence in the culture that's what we use, and sometimes it's not a good term, but we didn't know what else to call it, this idea of toxic silence, that there's a way of silencing people, there's a way of breaking people, there's a way of harming people, and that that kind of silence is not the silence that you first spoke so eloquently about at the beginning of a presence, about how it, it's creative, about it allows poetry, it's prayer— it's the opposite of that. It seems to be, it looks like a silence, but it's really vile and and breaks community and causes harm. And so this- And I'm happy to break that silence it, anytime. Amen. So <laughs> so this this beauty of, I, I feel the way, what you've, I've heard listening to you, it's like your work is to break that silence, to break that toxic silence, and then bring this communal, positive, receptive silence back. I mean, you just told us that you were doing that with that poetry, that you were posting it, and then people are like, thank you, you did something with that that allows me to then keep going. <laughs> and and that that's... That seems to be the role of the poet, or at least your role. <laughs> so it's so beautiful to hear that. Uh, I don't really have a question. I'm going to stop talking, but I do want to say thank you so much for uh, Nikki Giovanni is one of my favorite poets ever. So I'm so excited that <laughs> that you were hanging around with her. I got to meet her. I was honored to meet her in college. My wife was a poetry major, um, and we invited her to come to campus, and we got to hang out with her. One oh, glorious cool. day uh, when I was 19. Uh, so yeah, that's amazing. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, Giovanni. It's so funny. When we started out, there was there were only two Nikki's. Then people started confusing us because of the name. And you could always tell, I used to do radio and I would get these call-ins and I would get a question and, I, and I'd, I'd be silent for a moment and I'd say, oh, you think I'm Giovanni, don't you? And then I'd hear the silence on the other end. And I'm like, it's okay. And at conferences, invariably, people will bring my book to her, her book to me to sign. And like, well, I'm happy to sign it, but I'm not that, Nikki. <laughs> But it's, it's especially funny now because, you know, it seems like if you throw a rock, you'll hit a Nikki now, you know. But it wasn't that way when we started out. <laughs> I, I love the generosity in your voice as you tell this story and that, you know, you, you kind of accept people's foibles and the confusion. You have to. They yeah. mean well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be a confused with somebody, Nikki, I, in my opinion, Nikki's a great poet. So, I mean, to be confused with a great poet is, is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I think that, that river, the current runs both ways. So. <laughs> yeah. I bet you, I bet you she has no problem being confused with, by you, with you either. <laughs> oh, we're both okay with it. Nikki, I'm wondering if you might be open to sharing another one of your poems with us. Sure. Do you have one in mind? One we were perhaps thinking on is the poem titled On Quiet Feet. Yeah. But if there's something you're drawn to from our conversation or this moment, I'd be, I'm, I'm sure we'd be more than happy to move organically with what, what you're drawn to, to share. Oh, yeah. Well, I talked about um, a garden. Actually, I, I'll, I'll have two poems. Can I read two poems? You can read as many poems as you would like. Yes. Yes, absolutely. exactly. <laughs> okay, the poem on uh, Quiet Feet was, um, I'll do that one first. A uh, poem I wrote about my father. When my dad walks into a room or down the street, he inches up on me, silent as shadow. And I don't know he's there until I feel his hug. Sometimes when he is near, I might even hear his heartbeat, but never 
his quiet feet. My father was always in loafers. These really soft loafers and he just always was so quiet in his movements. You would just always be startled. You would just like, never know he was there. Um, and he was soft-spoken. So yeah, it was always quiet. Everything about him was quiet until he sat down with his violin. And that was not quiet, which I love. My favorite instrument still to today is a violin. When we were talking about nature, I pulled out one of the poems from uh, Legacy. Women Poets of the Harlem Renaissance. And I had a whole section on uh, nature poems. And this was one of those. In search of verse, enter a garden and kneel. Feel the sun-kissed clay between thumb and forefinger. If you're surprised by the wriggling life form in the midst, a curly brown creature, thank her for doing her worm work turning your soil into gold, her sentient sacrifice of time unmeasured until now. Meditate on the gifts the earth will furnish, assuming nourishment, light, and life's clear elixir, the water which satisfies, soothes, tickles, what wet word pours itself into the vessel that you call thought? Be still till your imagination tells you which picture it wants you to paint. This is the lyrical word journey of the poet. Pace yourself. Watch the bee slowly gathering what fragrant nectar he can find worthy of a hive and its queen. Now, slowly, gather words for a poem, a honeyed treat. Isn't that what a poem is? I love that poem. I, I, um... I'm starting to feel, guys, like that we can do an entire podcast. I would be totally be fine. Let's just invite poets and have them read. I could sit here and listen to poetry being read to me all day. <laughs> that was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it was a golden shovel poem because that's a book of golden shovel poetry, which is a form I am absolutely obsessed with now. And the line that I borrowed was, uh, Neil and the curly worm sentient now will light the word that tells the poet what a poem is. Those are so fun. Uh, Nikki, for listeners who may not be familiar with Golden Shovel poems, could you uh, share a little bit about that particular form? Oh, my favorite. Okay. Golden Shovel, uh, first of all, it's, it's a pretty new form, relatively new form um, that was created by uh, poet Terence Hayes. And he created it for anthology of Golden Shovel Poetry designed to celebrate the work of Gwendolyn Brooks. And so a number of poets around the world were invited to choose a line from a favorite Gwendolyn Brooks poem and then write a Golden Shovel poem as a result. And so what you do is you borrow one or more lines from an existing poem and you line them up on the page in the right margin, one word at a time. And then you write a new line that ends in those words. So that if you start off with a line that has three words, say, you would end up with a three line poem. If it has seven words, it would be a seven line poem and so on. I love sort of, it feels like limit, the limits to it at first, that those kind of you know, restrictions but I find it enormously freeing. And you can write a new, the new poem can be a reflection on the existing poem, or it can take its own direction. It can be completely different. Um, or some, you know, sort of combination of, of the two. But I love it. I found that for me, 
this form of poetry feels very sculptural. You don't really know where you're going until you get there. So you're just taking your little word chisel and trying out different things to see what works. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh, that's what was in there. Okay. And I, I just, I love that about, about the form. For young people, it's very freeing because they love just having somewhere to start. I find adults tend to be, but adult writers tend to be a little more hesitant because they want the kind of level of control that you cannot have in a golden shovel phone. <laughs> you've got to give, you've got to come to it wide open. That's the only way to do it. And so some of my uh, adult folks are like, oh, I can't do that. I can't go there. The kids are like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, let's do it. And they're off and running, you know, oh, I love it. But periodically someone on, on Twitter or Facebook will share a golden shovel that they wrote. What was it yesterday, the day before? Someone shared a golden shovel that, where they'd taken a line from one of my poems and it's usually what happens. And they wrote a poem about me in the form of a golden shovel. <laughs> How cool is that? But I'm endlessly fascinated with the form. I've written two collections and one picture book thus far um, using that form. And I definitely have plans to do more. Lots of fun. Um, and I love that it's hard. I'm always drawn to things that are difficult. <laughs> And if they're not difficult, I find a way to make them difficult by adding on layers. And then in the midst of it, I, I like look around and like, whose idea was this? <laughs> but it's a but challenge. It's great. Challenge. I love the challenge because it stretches me. It makes me grow. And there's so much satisfaction at the end when I have accomplished this thing that I didn't know I could pull off. And so I'm always walking into my fear. And Golden Shovel is definitely about that. But it's just so delicious. I, I think this interview feels pretty complete to me. Unless yeah, I, either I of no, you have. I got nothing. I'm agreeing with you, Carl. Unless Cassidy has something. I, I feel it's like this is like knocked it out of the park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is an incredible conversation and much needed for me personally in the ways and the places that you touched and um, the topics that you emerged for us, just so overall important for people to hear. And I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. Thank you. Appreciate it. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you. <laughs>